0: Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, Emerging Perspectives on People, Process, and Profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood.
1: Hi, Olivia here, and welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. So today, I'm very excited to have as my guests, Jeremy Eden and Terry Long, and we'll be discussing Tapping Your Greatest Resource. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy and Terry. They are co-founders and co-CEOs of Harvest Earnings. Terry was a client of Jeremy's and was so impressed with the principles of his approach that she decided to join him. And they both quickly realized that they were in lockstep about how companies could grow earnings and improve the customer experience. So they built a process to do just that. And they share it in their new book, Low Hanging Fruit, 77 Eye-Opening Ways to Improve Productivity and Profits. So Jeremy and Terry, welcome to Quantum Business Insights.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We're glad to be be
1: here. My pleasure. So as soon as I saw your book, I was immediately attracted to the title because it contained the words low-hanging fruit, and as a data scientist, I always loved being the first one to get my hands on a rich, unexplored company database, mainly because there, were lots, there was always a lot of low-hanging fruit. We could get a lot of quick wins with very little effort. So what I love about your book is it goes way beyond just exploring data. You argue that most companies can find these quick wins within all areas of their organization. So for my listeners, how do you define low-hanging fruit, and why is it so hard to spot?
2: Well, a low-hanging fruit, first of all, you're absolutely right. We do believe that there is a huge amount of low-hanging fruit in basically every company. And low-hanging fruit are ideas which are essentially easy to execute and carry very little risk or no risk and tend to be either neutral or beneficial to the customer. In other words, they're just smart, easy things to do that aren't getting done which leads naturally to your second question of, well, if there's all this uh, easy-to-do, smart stuff, why isn't it getting done? And there's really uh, two vantage points to think about this. One is from the senior management's vantage point, particularly in large companies. Often this low-hanging fruit is hidden very deep in the organization. uh, And senior managers get spreadsheets and financial numbers but they don't know every detail and nook and cranny of a process, which is where a lot of this low-hanging fruit is. So senior management is often too far removed from it. On the other mm-hmm. hand, the people who are closest to the work and closest to the customer and see this every day, first of all, a lot of them do see it. They just don't have the right, the right way within their company to do anything about it. But others don't see it because we just get inured to how things work. And so when you're a new hire, you may see an issue, but six months in, 12 months in, two years, three years later, you stop seeing that as a problem to be solved, and you just start seeing it as that's the way we do work here.
1: That's so interesting, and I've had that experience where I've joined a company and seen things that to me seemed obvious, and yet the people there didn't even think about it. So, that's really, really interesting. Yep. So, what are some ways that my listeners could go about uncovering these quick wins?
3: Oh, Olivia, there are so many. (laughs) Um, We (laughs) think first, one of the the first things that companies should do, though, is uh, instead of saying, okay, you know, we've got this cost-cutting initiative, so... Um, you know, we need to look for, for, for waste and ways to just cut costs. And then everybody bristles because, you know, people feel like they've been through that a million times and they are already uh, have cut to the bone. Um, we don't really believe that's true. But um, instead of saying we're looking for ways to cut costs, ask, for peop- ask people uh, what frustrates them, what gets in the way of their doing their jobs in, in the best way that they can. Um, so when you approach people with, you know, what, what drives you nuts? What process is just, you know, wrong? <laughs> uh, what steps here? Uh, then you open the floodgates of ideas. And much of that is really low-hanging fruit. Not not all of it. Some of it's at the top of the tree. But a lot of it is um, just, uh, you know, we've been, we've been doing it forever, and it's not been examined in a long time. Um, Then there's a lot of of techniques to use after you ask for frustrations. Um, One of them you just um, touched on a little bit. We recommend that you interview your new hires a few months into um, them being on board because, you know, you do see things right away um, that, you know, in amazingly quick time you stop seeing um, we had an, an example um, years back where a company was was doing this process. They did it once a year. It was kind of like a budget process. Um, and at one point in time, they were using pink paper to identify a certain kind of expense. And um, they had long that had long since ended. Um, but when the process time, when it was time to do the process, the order list still had pink paper on it. And every year, they'd be you know ordering more and more pink paper um and somebody that's, new said well what's the pink paper for and everybody went oh oh right no no we don't need the pink paper but it took that okay. new that new person to see it
1: well that's fascinating cuz i heard a similar story about michelin tires that they brought in a consultant to look for ways to cut costs and he said well why are you shrink wrapping your tires and they said well, because then it keeps the white walls clean. But they weren't making white wall tires anymore, and hadn't
2: for years.
1: So, yeah, that's
2: That's great. That is a perfect, <laughs> perfect example. And, you know, and so, so you, you you asked, you know, how listeners can uncover low hanging fruit. We the way we do it is we have a whole process that people go through. But some elements of the process include things like teaching people to say. Uh, something we, we call 5Y, I don't know if you've heard of this, but nobody learns more about the world faster than a 2-year-old. And uh. how does a 2-year-old learn so much so quickly? They go, why, 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 until they get that to the bottom or is as far as they can go. Well, we find that when someone says, oh, our turnover rate is, you know, 45%, They might ask why once, and then they'll get an answer, and they stop. Mm. And one of the techniques we use is to keep asking why, 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 because you may discover that it isn't what you thought it was. Um, As as Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know. It's what you know for sure that it ain't true that hurts you. Mm. And by (laughs) asking five why many times, you get to the bottom, but coupled with that, and this is really hard in most companies and probably hard for your listeners, but they should try it, is in the middle of getting, once you've gotten an answer back from a why, you know, why is that happening? Why is that happening? To understand the cause. Ask the person who's giving you the answer. How do you know that? Because one of the things Mm -hmm. we've learned is that people are sure of something, but they haven't actually tested it in the market recently or they haven't, looked for the data to back it up. And so a lot of the way they're thinking about the world is based on an intuition or an experience from years ago, but not on facts that are fresh.
3: We have a great example of that. Uh, we were working with a client uh, a few years ago, and we were asking factories to come up with ideas, you know, what was frustrating them. And we got a, a fair number of ideas, but very few of them were requests for capital, which is very unusual from factories. That's, you know, usually a big part of the ideas they come up with. Um, and we asked why no capital ideas, and uh, and they said, "Well, we just don't have any that meet the IRR hurdle of 55 percent." And we said, "55 percent? Really? That that can't be right." Oh yeah, we got a memo um, from the CFO. That's what it is. Um, so we questioned the CFO. Of course, is it really 55 percent? And he looks at us. Now, puzzled. can you
1: can you can you define the IRI? What that is?
3: IRR. It's the internal oh, rate IRR, of
2: return, sorry. and it's, gotcha. the, okay. it, it's the benefit, <laughs> in effect, that a project That's has okay. to yield, like, like if you were to buy a bond or something. Um, and normally in companies, if something has a, a return of 10 to 20%, it's good. Um, and so to have, a, to have a return of 55% is an astonishingly high hurdle. So So
3: I I, I have to interject. I broke one of my own rules, which is no TLAs, three-letter acronyms.
1: (laughs) Well, and I keep a dictionary for a few of my clients because, and this is a pretty standard one, but I don't know that everybody would know what it was, and I actually didn't hear it quite right even then. So (laughs) thank you for that. But yeah, 55% is very high. So anyway, continue with your
3: story. So so the the CFO raises his eye, really, there's no such rule. So he was fairly new in the job, so he did some digging, and he found that there had been a memo a couple of years earlier that applied to a single factory that they were going to sell, you know, in the near term. So any investments in that factory had to have this ridiculous payback, you know, very fast because, you know, they were going to, 18 months later or something, they they expected that that factory was going to be sold. So it only applied to one factory for one specific reason, but, you know, the factory managers... It, it had spread throughout all the factories, and that had become fact, um, 55%. That's,
1: that's incredible, that, that, and yet you wonder how, many, how much loss they've had as a result of that rule, that nobody questioned it.
2: That's Well that's we, 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 know, we know that um, as soon as this corporate myth was busted, <laughs> because we said, how do you know that, uh, they came up with uh, tens of millions of new earnings they could get, by investing in very, very fast payback projects. So it would have been costing Ow. them at least tens of millions for several years. And this isn't a sophisticated, big, uh, well-run company. It's just that hmm. even big, well-run companies are peopled by people, and people you know, <laughs> follow the rules of human nature. <laughs> and one of the rules of human nature is if you hear something, particularly from a boss or you think you've heard something from a boss, you sort of take it as gospel because it's very uncomfortable to say, even to a peer, much less to a boss. How, how do you know that? Yeah. And so you don't. Well, and I you
1: would think that. it would take a certain type of leader. Have you ever had a request to go into a company, and when you actually tell them what they need to do, they say, well, we don't want to do that because, they, I don't know, they would feel threatened or, or feel like the employees could get too powerful or anything like that? Has that ever happened? Well...
2: Well, no, but this is a really important point you raise, And the reason is, <clears throat> so many, many, many years ago, I was with, uh, well, I shouldn't say so many many's, but <laughs> some time ago, I was with, a, with McKinsey & Company. I'm not oh, that's that, a
3: lot of many's. I'm not that old.
2: Uh, um, uh, with McKinsey & Company, which is one of the leading management consulting firms in the world, and they use the traditional approach of sending in people to look at a company's data making recommendations, and then telling the company what should be done. And, you know, there might be some call for that kind of traditional consulting, but one reason that I left and created with Terry this whole new approach is we actually think telling outsiders, telling anybody, much less bosses, what they should do is a recipe for failure. Nobody likes to be told Mm. what to do. We don't like to be told by our parents. We don't like to be told by our bosses, and we certainly don't like to be told by some outside consultant. So the trick to getting low-hanging fruit isn't to say, let's bring in an expert to tell us what we're doing wrong. The trick, and you mentioned this in the, in the start when you talked about human capital, is organizing the employees who are closest to the work to do the fact-finding, ask the questions, do the right, identify the frustrations, do the right kind of problem-solving. So by the time they come up with a solution, the solution is one that everybody who's affected by the idea says, it's smart, it'll make money, it's easy to do, our customers will like it, what do you think, boss, will you approve it? And there's nothing to, the boss says, fantastic. Mm, So So you don't get the resistance of the boss saying, I won't do it. Because they already, everybody else has already done all the homework necessary to say, of course we should be doing this.
1: Yeah, Uh, and And, and and I would think this, go ahead, sorry.
3: I was just going to say, and you then get the benefit of uh, one of our top two favorite quotes of all time, (laughs) which was said by uh, Lou Platt, who was the former um, CEO of Hewlett-Packard. And he said, if only HP knew what HP knows, we'd be three times as productive. Uh, That says it all. It does. (laughs) It says it It, all, and it sums up what we do.
1: So you're basically gleaning the wisdom from within the company. And, And I think that's even becoming more important. I think years ago, the McKinsey model worked because things didn't change very much, and the Employees weren't as specialized or didn't need to know quite as much, I guess, and with just the way things are changing through technology and globalization, there's so much more information that employees need to know and can probably observe within the workings of the company that can't possibly make it to top management unless they really start asking these questions so that's great well we're just up on a break and so I think we'll go to break now and uh, so I want to reintroduce my guests uh, Jeremy Eden and Terry Long and we're talking about their amazing new book Low Hanging Fruit 77 Eye-Opening Ways to Improve Productivity and Profits and you can learn more about their work at harvestearnings.com and we'll be right back
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kirk Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business.
0: You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights.
1: Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with my guests, Jeremy Eden and Terry Long. And we're talking about their new book, Low Hanging Fruit, and all the ways that companies can look for just quick wins by tapping the wisdom of their employees. And we were talking a little bit about what leaders might need to do and and employees, how, how they can create a relationship to actually share the information and um, so I'm wondering, I often hear many companies want to increase and grow profits, but they're resistant to change. So what do you think causes this resistance? And do you have any suggestions for dealing with it?
2: Um, yeah, yes, but before we, we uh, talk about the suggestions, it's our observation that people do not resist change. It's our mm. observation that people resist bad change. In fact, most people seek out change, right? They get married, they have kids, they move, they go to college, they change jobs many uh, times. Um, they go to exotic places for vacations. Uh, they invest in new careers. So, uh, and nobody has ever said to a boss, you know, thanks for that offer of a big raise, but that's a change. And I'm not sure I want it. Um, So it's not that people resist change, it's that people resist bad change or change they don't understand because they weren't involved in creating it.
1: Yes, that makes sense, because I think people might not know it's good, and they still resist it, so
2: that's really helpful. That's right. In fact, um, uh, when I was at McKinsey, I did some work for Goldman Sachs, and this was back in the... uh, working with some technology for their, uh, on, their, on the trading floor of the um, exchange. And they knew it was going to be hard. They actually called them burger boards because it was like McDonald's was the first one that had put in these touch screens on their registers. So, you know, someone could hit cheeseburger, <laughs> but instead they'd be able to hit a button that said, you know, some stock. And instead of taking the youngest kid who would be most prone to be interested in this, they took the most curmudgeonly, difficult trader they had who basically <laughs> was always against everything. <laughs> and they had him brilliant. help design what the screen was and get very involved. Oh well he became, you know, the the zealot of this new technology.
3: Isn't this like light cereal? Let's give it to Mikey.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like exactly. You know, this is brilliant. brilliant. So <laughs> right.
2: so what we say is have a process where the buy-in is built in. And what we mean by that is have a process that says to the tellers in the branches, we're not just going to throw some technology at you and tell you all the wonders that we told the board when they approved it. Instead, why don't you tellers tell us what takes time, what's frustrating, and what keys do you wish were further apart or closer to each other, and what would make your life better? So by the time the thing gets designed, the tellers feel like it was their idea, because in many ways it was their idea. So they're not going to resist that change. They're going to embrace that change.
3: And you know, resistance to change gets used, too, as an excuse to stick with bad stuff. And that really mm. drives us nuts. So we hear lots of times, "Well, you know, this—we rolled out this process. It's not really going very well. We've had a lot of trouble with it. But boy, if we rolled out another one right away, people would go nuts." Well, mm. not really. They'd probably go, "Yay! Okay, we recognize that that was bad, and now we're, we've improved it." Um, so it gets yes. used as an excuse all the time.
1: That's fascinating, and it sounds like what you're saying is if you get them involved in the solution, then it's much easier to get them to embrace the new, uh, the way, new way things are going to be. So That's right, and, really- and, just
2: to, and just to give you uh, an example of the power of this, while low-hanging fruit is about quick wins, we don't want anybody to have the impression that it leads to a small impact, so just to give mm. you an example... When PNC Financial <clears throat> undertook a very disciplined process to engage their employees to find all their low-hanging fruit, this is what happened. In 100 days, their employee teams found six, came up with 6,000 ideas. Wow. Those teams evaluated and determined that 2,400 of those ideas would uh, be good for the customer, good for the culture, make work easier, be smart to do. The CEO approved those 2,400 ideas. He was then able to announce to Wall Street that those were worth, because the teams committed to a financial value, that they would be worth $400 million on an annual basis, which was a Mm. big, big number. And every quarter, he could go to Wall Street and say, we're actually implementing these faster than the commitments that were made, and we're getting more out of them than the financial commitments that were made. Now, most big projects are over budget and take too long. This massive value was going faster and yielding more. And the reason is this thing that if employees are bought into it, they helped create it, they understand it, then instead of having the normal resistance that you were referring to to implementation, you actually mm-hmm. make it much easier and faster to implement things. And I'll just give you one analogy and then I'll stop. Which is <laughs> we sometimes think of of a pipeline of ideas and you have this pipeline and ideas have to be thought of and then they have to be vetted and they have to be approved and then they have to be implemented. Well if you try to shove a big boulder down this pipeline, it usually gets stuck somewhere. But mm-hmm. if you have lots and lots of pebbles they just smoothly flow through the pipeline. And so you can actually get more out the other end in terms of earnings growth, even though what you're starting with seems like, well, these are just small little things.
1: Yes, and I, I would think there might be some people that would fear lots of different projects like this just because of the, the number. But it sounds like it, they're all well thought out as far as, or maybe that's the the quick part is that they're simple to do and maybe then, you know, they take, a, a, they take on a process over time. But the, the added value is so great that it's just, you know, almost unquestionable that you would want to do them. I mean, you to know, go from well,
2: success and is... And also remember, was, it's not that, mm-hmm. that you have one poor person who has to do 2,400 projects. You're spreading mm-hmm. this across every nook and cranny of the company. And so in these big companies, there's a lot of nooks and crannies. So any given unit, any given person might be working on one idea, two ideas, Mm -hmm. five ideas. So it's it's over the space of six months or a year. So for any given individual or any given unit, it's not a big burden. But collectively Mm -hmm. over a large company, it's stupendous.
3: Yeah, there were 60 teams working on ideas at PNC, for example. So the mm-hmm. average number of ideas per team was 40, and I mean that varied pretty widely. But um, uh, then there were also a number of people on each team. So it really is many hands making light work.
1: Oh, that's great! And um, did they? Did any companies do? I would think this would really get the employees invigorated. Have they done? employee satisfaction surveys and found that it's actually good for those results.
3: Yes. Um not everyone has has done that but a couple have and and definitely the marks go up in terms of employee satisfaction particularly on the uh you know the questions like I feel listened to, I feel valued, my opinion counts. Uh, mm. makes it makes a big difference.
2: And uh, yeah, we, and we I, worked for, sorry we worked for a large corporate division <laughs> as part of the whole company, uh, and they had not received bonuses for three years because of poor performance. So you can imagine that the, the year they did this, uh, they made enough money from the project that they beat their targets and got bonuses for the first time in three years. Uh, you didn't really need a survey to know that they were pretty happy <laughs> about that.
1: <laughs> money talks, right? Money talks.
2: <laughs> or as Bob Dylan and- says, money doesn't talk, it swears.
1: Oh, that's, that's great. That's really good. Well, so um, how do you get employees engaged? Let's say you're going in and you the, the management team really likes your approach. What do you do to get the employees motivated because they're not familiar with the process? Uh,
3: well, we have a very, very detailed process that we um, take our clients through. So. Um, it it starts with uh, a kickoff day or two where we're um, explaining what's going to happen over the next hundred days, <laughs> and it's um, uh, we we uh, ma- try and make it very energizing, and we um, emphasize the we're going to solve problems. You know, we're gonna we're gonna go after those frustrations that this is not just slash and burn, mm. um, and we give them some tools to do that, and then um, literally about 30 days later. Those those folks. So I said at PNC, for example, there were 60 teams. Those 60 teams, about 30 days after kickoff, presented to the top of the house. So Jim Moore was the CEO, um, and his direct reports. Uh, teams came in every half an hour, roughly, and said, "Here's the ideas we're working on, and here's what we're excited, and here's the things that are, you know, that we're that we still have to figure out a risk for this, or you know, the money that it would take to do that." Um, and they came back 60 days after that. Um, so you can imagine that, you know, team after team after team uh, presenting to the CEO and um, his direct reports. That's that's motivating in and of itself um, because a lot of the people who are coming in and talking about ideas they don't get time with the CEO of their company. Um, mm-hmm. The CEO might not have even known their names until the process. Uh, so that's. That's motivating um, by itself, uh, but also, you know, these short deadlines squeeze out the unimportant work, so everybody mm-hmm. is focused, and when we do, we don't always do this, but when we do entire companies at once, it becomes um, like this thing they're going through <laughs> together, um, mm-hmm. and a, a, an exciting thing, an energizing thing, and there's a lot of buzz about it, and uh, people want to do well, and there's... You know some Some are more competitive than others, but there are some uh, team leaders that say i 'm going to win this game. I am going to get the highest you know the best ideas, the most ideas the most dollars because that 's you know who I am um, mm-hmm. and when you wrap that around just giving them that that forum with you know the tools that that our process provides and that our team provides, we have a software system that manages ideas, but we also have a team of senior people that we have it a client. So we're not leveraging, you know, junior MBAs that are a year out of school. Um, these are all people who have primarily been on their side of the table. Um, mm-hmm. Ironically, I think Jeremy is the only one who's <laughs> so been a consultant his whole life. <laughs> when I was four, yes. I told the other kindergarteners. I'm sure he did, actually. Um, <laughs> That's insane.
1: Um, that's great. Yeah, so one,
2: so, one, one of the important things of this is it, you can't use a suggestion box or anything that feels like that. <clears throat> that. You know, you don't motivate people by saying, give us your ideas. Because all, they, are so, they so believe that nothing will ever happen with them, that mm-hmm. they don't give them in. And then management goes, see, nobody's got any ideas, I told you.
1: Well, what if they're afraid... Is there a way to anonymously share your frustrations if they don't feel safe?
3: Yeah, we do always have a, a way to do that. But um, there's enough process, enough rules built into the process that that doesn't mm-hmm. need to happen very much. Um, because, you know, a team is told basically, you look, look at every expense in your team, every revenue, every dollar of revenue that your team produces... And come up with ideas against it. Sometimes we use stretch targets, so there's some um, ideas that you know won't be done, but make people think out of the box. Even though we don't like that expression, <laughs> but, you know, they, they have to <laughs> Nobody think. Nobody does, everything. but it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We actually use think inside the box, in the box meaning um, you know the company. So <laughs> inside the box mm. is the employees, but. Um, Anyway, um, so they're, they're forced to look at everything as part of the process. They do it anyway, and they have sort of the freedom to then say, well, um, we've, had, we've had team leaders recommend that their jobs, their own position, be eliminated, and that, they, that their was, team be murdered by someone answer. else. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I, it absolutely happens.
2: So one of the best ways to make it uh, safe, so you said, you know, what, what happens um, – if someone feels it's unsafe, the best way to Mm -hmm. deal with that is to make it safe. So Mm -hmm. one CEO that we worked with uh, told us the best piece of advice we ever gave him was also a piece of advice that he was a little annoyed at when we gave it to him. So it was the day of the first uh, set of presentations, and we said, you're going to hear a bunch of ideas that you're going to want to leap across the table, throttle the person who's saying it, And yell at them, why did I need this process to hear this? Why didn't you do already fix this problem? That's what you're going to want to do. Instead, Mm -hmm. sit on your hands, have a big smile on your face, and say, I am so glad that you are now tackling this problem for us. So we go through the day, and at the end of the day, he was great. He was fabulous during the day. And so all the teams who had a little trepidation because they didn't know how safe from unsafe this was, mm-hmm. hear their CEO being excited about hearing about problems, hearing about frustrations, and hearing smart, clever ways to fix them. So they're happy. And at the end of the day, he said to us, you are so right. I did want to leap across the table a few times, but because I did what you suggested, I could tell it was palpable that people are now going to dig even deeper in the next 30 days.
3: Well, and when we do kickoff, we have the, uh, uh, usually the CEO literally start the day, so introduce us, but also talk about what's going to happen, and as part of that, say that there's, first of all, an amnesty, so... If, um, you know, there's going to be no blame for a bad process if there's ideas put on the table to fix that process. Um, And that also there's no sacred cows. So uh, sacred cows meaning that literally everything is on the table. So lots of times when we started uh, working with a company, we'll hear, oh, well, you know, we can't close branches, for example, or we can't shut down stores because that's just sacred, you know, we're not allowed to do that, that's an important thing, or this subsidiary is, you know, untouchable. Um, And we talk with the top of the house um, about those issues and have them very publicly say, we want ideas about everything, including these things that you think we don't. And that makes a big difference.
1: I could see, and the first thing that comes to mind is oh, well, there's some family connection. But, you know, in other cases, <laughs> or that aside, I would think they would want to look at everything. Have you ever had that happen?
2: With the family Where- connection?
1: Well, yeah. So maybe there's some family member that's running one of the divisions that's not going very well, and they can't do anything about it. I mean, that's kind of strange. We, we, that question yeah. Well, we've
2: had about. we've had a no. Well, there's a, there's an analogy to that, or a, sim, a similar situation to that. We haven't <clears throat> literally had a family member, but sometimes, um, not sometimes, not uh, fairly frequently, companies will acquire another company that's very small. And the head of that company that's being acquired is really the rainmaker. They are the key person that, that makes the company worth buying. So now the parent company wants to impose some kind of process on this acquired company. And the acquired company's leader says, not interested. I don't care about the parent. I don't have to listen to them because they would never get rid of me because I'm mm. the reason they bought us to begin with. And that is um, challenging and can happen. Um, But what we've learned over time is when the parent does this kind of bottoms-up, low-hanging fruit over time, even that resistant subsidiary starts saying to itself, huh, looks like there are easy ways to make more money. And one of the reasons I sold my company was to make more money. So... And, and you know, and the parent isn't telling me what to change. They're not telling me what ideas to come up with. They're just giving me tools and a process to make more money. So ultimately, mm-hmm. they they do embrace it, but it, it, it could take a little longer.
1: So that's a really great nuance, or you know, a distinction yeah. between the the two. So rather than the McKinsey type consultant coming in and saying, "Do this," which the the new hired um, CEO or, or manager of that subsidiary could be very resistant. Yeah, you're yeah. saying, we're giving you some tools. You can do what you want with him, and then he'll watch and figure out that it's actually a great process. So
2: that's right. That's, that's we, really,
1: really helpful. And we're just up on a break. Did you want to make a quick comment?
2: Or? I was just going to say, we worked in one company where there was a brokerage firm who was completely resistant until they reread mm. their own contract and realized they got a share of whatever benefit they helped create in this process. And like overnight, I don't know who made them read this thing, but overnight they uh, they became real zealots of the process.
1: <laughs> Again, money talks, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, right. so we're going to go to break. Again, my guests are Jeremy Eden and Terry Long, and we're talking about their new book, Low Hanging Fruit, 77 eye-opening ways to improve productivity and profits and you can learn more about jeremy and terry at harvestearnings.com and we'll be right back
4: from the boardroom to you voice america business network Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel business community's first choice in internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights.
1: So I'm here, Olivia, with my guests, Jeremy Eaton and Terry Long. And we're talking about their New York Times bestselling book, Low Hanging Fruit, 77 Eye-Opening Ways to Improve Productivity and Profits. And before the break, we were talking about ways to inspire informi- or good ideas from employees and ways that leaders can do this in the process and tools that Jeremy and Terry offer to actually engage in this process. So I wanted to explore a little bit about uh, accountability and why is that important in this process?
3: Um, it, well, it, there's one, one important financial reason, and that is if um, people don't, either A, come up with ideas, or B, then um, meet the, uh, the the financial promise, let's say, with that idea. So when in, in our process, when somebody um, comes up with an idea, they then have to analyze that idea for you know, risk, um, how it impacts customers and employees, et cetera, but they also have to have a very detailed financial um, amount attached to implementation of that idea. And then once Mm -hmm. it's approved, there's also an implementation date. So um, when there's, you know, a lot of these and they add up, um, certain, you know, the top of the house thinks, well, we have X amount of dollars that we can either invest in, you know, new equipment, in lowering prices, and, you know, any number of things, of course. And if people aren't accountable um, to delivering on those ideas and those financial promises, then they don't, you know, they don't know what what dollars they have to invest. Um, they, you know, we we use the term sandbagging, um, and if um, somebody is trying to look like a hero, saying, "Well, I've got this idea and it's going to save a million bucks," but really it's worth a hundred thousand, that doesn't serve anybody mm. well. And if you don't hold people accountable, um, you know, it's sort of a little bit all is lost for the future. Uh, mm. People see that, and it's very demotivating. I mean, you, you, you asked about, you know, how do we motivate people? Accountability, and even the transparency into that accountability, is, uh, is motivating to people. Mm-hmm. If I think I'm not going to be held accountable, you know, so nobody's going to, they're going to ask me, but then it just sort of goes into this black hole, that's not very motivating.
2: Or even worse, one of my peers isn't going to be held accountable
3: <laughs> yeah true
2: well, right. why, why should I do this if, they're, if they're, they don't have to mm.
1: so in your book you talk about very specific ways to set that up and and the tools I guess uh, facilitate that the software and everything is that yes. true
2: yes oh. so f- for, for example uh, as Terry said when an idea is approved it's not just the idea that's approved it's exactly how much needs to be invested to do the idea, if anything. It's exactly how it's going to yield benefits, you know, from what part of the P&L. It's the exact months it's going to be finished. It's who needs to be involved. So it's a very detailed set of requirements to get approval. And then our software helps the company track that every one of these commitments was actually made. Because we think it's very important to, to, have. if you want a culture of innovation, you need to have a culture that lives up to its promises, a culture that can make big promises and live up to them. And so if everybody knows there's total transparency, the boss at any moment can look in the system and say, this is a dollar short or a day late, and there's a consequence to that. I'm going to be, mm-hmm. so one of, the way, one of the consequences we have is a rule that says, it's okay if an idea doesn't work. You know, out of 2,400 ideas, 10, 15, 20 of them might not have worked. That's fine. But we want to know that it didn't work. We want to know it's not going to work before it was supposed to be due, so we have time to do something about it. And third, and most importantly, any idea that it has to get formally withdrawn and replaced by another idea of equal value. So you can't just go to the boss and say, oh, sorry, give me a break. Instead, mm-hmm. what you have to say is, I know I owe you hundred grand, and it's six months later. I'll bet there's a new idea that I hadn't thought of originally that I'm going to go find now to replace. And so I'm held accountable to those dollars, and, yeah. and that's very important.
3: But, but also, the top of the house is held accountable as well throughout this process, mm-hmm. so when they when they embark on this, you know, they're making a commitment. First of all, to make decisions on the vast majority of these ideas, so the mm-hmm. teams. One of the things that motivates them is you know, a lot of people have ideas and they throw them out and, and nothing happens with them. But in this process, um, you know, in roughly a hundred days, they're a, they're going to get a decision on. Ninety-nine percent of the ideas that they come up with, and the ones that remain will still be tracked, and a decision, you know, will eventually be made. But they're, you know, they're bigger, hairier for some reason. Maybe they have a huge investment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But you know, so they know that they're not just throwing these things out, and you know, they're going to um, die in the vine. Um, so that's something that that helps motivate. And if a, an, a, an idea is proved, and it has um, an investment, which you know, most of them don't because most low-hanging fruit doesn't need it, but the ones that do, once it gets approved mm-hmm. by the top of the house, they are saying, we commit to you that we will fund this idea. They have to be held accountable to that as well.
1: Well, and I would think they would also have to be account- held accountable for su- other support if necessary, you know, if it's software or training or, or oh, yeah. things like that.
2: Yes, and, yes. And, in, and in fact, one of the one of the key signs of that, in fact, is that they've brought us in. So they're showing the company we're willing to invest in you know, the state-of-the-art process and the right software and the best team. And, and then when we leave, um, people know that management is going to continue. For example, they continue to use the software. and They continue to meet every month to review every idea until it's been um, completed. So it doesn't just dissipate.
1: Mm -hmm. So how do I I know many employees feel like they're already working as many hours as they possibly can. So how do leadership and this, I guess, the the whole process create the time for people to actually do this? Is it extra work or is it built into their schedule or how do they account for that?
3: One of our favorite clients said at one point, I worked 50 hours before the process, I <laughs> worked 50 hours during the process, and I worked 50 hours after the process. So uh, we, we don't, what we actually don't want is to burn people out, so come in and just pile um, extra work on top of people. Um, what we find... Yes, because
2: another, another client said, I know you all, your plate is full, just get a bigger plate. We didn't think that was a good response.
3: No, no. (laughs) I think that was met with silence in the room. Yeah. (laughs) We we had a different client once say um, if we don't come up with a lot of good ideas, this can only end in tears. (laughs) Oh, well, I I would have said that. (laughs) That's great. um, But anyway, what we um, recommend and what happens is that it's made clear what's important. So coming up with, you know, ideas that have uh, a real impact on the earnings of the company is important. And important should squeeze out unimportant. And there is so much Mm. unimportant that Mm. is done every day in the name of getting the job done. I mean, one example that we use in the book is gold plating. So we find ourselves doing this, but we've gotten better at it. Um, you know, you've got, a, you've got a memo to write. You've got a PowerPoint to, to create, whatever it may be. And you get it to the point where it's communicating what you need it to communicate. But, man, it doesn't look as pretty as you'd like it to. Oh, you know, that blue is slightly different than the blue on page 18, um, mm. slide 18. Um, yes. There is so much time spent on that last 5% gold plating. Um, that when we come in and we're, we get people working excitedly on ideas, that stuff goes away.
2: So, so one example we give is, think about somebody two days before they're going to go on vacation. You are looking at the most productive person in the whole company because mm-hmm. when you're two days away from vacation, you start focusing and prioritizing on getting done what's important because you want to get out of there. And all the unimportant stuff you know, you push to the bottom and gets ignored. So ironically, or counterintuitively, one of the best ways um, to create the time for harvesting low-hanging fruit is to give people this Im- new important task to do. You know, you'd think if everyone's mm-hmm. busy, giving them a new important task would just add to their woes. But what it really does is it forces them to reprioritize, just like going on vacation, and to get rid of or just, you know, ignore... Deferred uh, or give short shrift to things that were not important that otherwise would have wasted their time. So that's one thing. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Eisenhower Time Matrix, but he Eisenhower, who you know won a war, ran a country, knew something about time management.
3: Well, he didn't win the war by himself.
2: No, he had helped, but you know, <laughs> he was good I at prioritizing. The win. He was, he was yes. clearly good at prioritizing. <laughs> his time and he had important things to do. On one axis it is important and unimportant, and on the other axis is urgent and not urgent. And unfortunately, there are many things that are important but not urgent that get ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been meaning to go to the gym, but I don't have time today. I'll go tomorrow. So I never work out, which is really important, but it's not urgent. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things that are not important but feel urgent. You know, I got an email. I just have to respond to this email. Why? It's just a cat video. (laughs) But I feel the need to. (laughs) So, one of the things that we we try to do with our process is to say, let's focus on the important, make it urgent so people focus on it and that just squeezes out some of that unimportant, you know. And and then we also, we may not have time on the show to get into it, but we also have a whole bunch of chapters on meetings because we know, and everybody else knows, that huge amounts of time get wasted on long meetings that are short on value.
1: Yeah, that's so true. So it sounds like the process really helps just streamline the whole thinking around getting to this low-hanging fruit and, and really changing the culture and getting everyone engaged. So uh, we have two minutes. Maybe could you take a minute and just... Offer a tip for a senior executive that would help him create a culture of ongoing harvesting.
2: Yeah, I don't think it takes a minute to say our phone number. Oh, no.
3: Yeah, fire um, us. Please, go ahead. Yeah, well, there you go. Yes. I, uh,
2: short, short of that, the single most important thing for a CEO, uh, particularly of a large company to do, is to understand how much low-hanging fruit there is in their company. Right now, they get reports day after day after day saying, we've done all this cost-cutting, we're lean as we could be, we're going to cut into muscle, there's really no more we could do, and if there is, it's going to be some big mega-system or huge new project. And if
3: people had ideas, we would have heard about them already.
2: That's right. We hear this all the time. We have incentive systems, we have performance review systems, we have budgets. How could it be that people have ideas that we wouldn't have already heard about? If a CEO, a little like being an undercover boss, Mm -hmm. goes to the factory floor, goes to the right arenas, and asks people, what are your frustrations? Where do you see us wasting time and money? Just to get a flavor. And once they realize, like Lou Platt did, that there's a huge amount of low-hanging fruit, then figuring out the system and process to get the ideas, that's the easy part. The hard part is believing that uh, and, oh. and and understanding how much is there.
1: Well, thank you. So it looks like we're about out of time. This has been really, really interesting. So thank you so much for being my guest thank today, you. and I hope you'll come back Me and visit too. again.
2: Oh, uh, we would we love will. to.
1: Thank you. So Thanks next you. week, about now? my pleasure. So next week, my guest will be Linda Barons of the Linda Behrens Institute. And Linda is an internationally recognized author organizational consultant, and leading theorist in the field of personality types. And we'll be discussing human agility mapping, so you won't want to miss this. For a full description of this show and other upcoming shows and guests, as well as access to all of our past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights,
0: and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.